It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. Happy Easter Sunday, everyone. I am your host, your civics teacher and your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I hope you and your family are safe and healthy. So many of us have been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And so many of us, including um, in my own family, have lost family members, had to file for unemployment, trying to manage healthcare coverage and much more. And I want all of you to know that I may not know your names individually, but I am praying for all of you, for all of us. Now, some of us are more impacted by this crisis than others. And it's important to acknowledge that while, yes, this is a global pandemic that we are all experiencing, everyone will not experience it the same. And different people will need different levels of support while we're in crisis and during our road to recovery. But we'll talk more about COVID-19 a little later in the show. Right now, I have a great guest to bring to the front of the class. We've talked a lot about political parties here on the show and their role in our politics and our political discourse. And I want to introduce you to more than just the two dominant parties. Sochi Namaka is a seasoned community organizer and national leader in the progressive movement who has spent her career building power for working people. She's the daughter of Nigerian immigrant parents, born and raised in New York. She attended Yale and she began organizing there with a local union of cafeteria and custodial workers. Today, she is the director of the New York State Working Families Party. Sochi, welcome to Sunday Civics. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for having me, Aljoy. So one of the first things we do anytime there is someone joining us for the very first time, we like to get a perspective on who you are by giving us a, a, a story. We believe in the power of storytelling here at Sunday Civics. So why don't you give us a quick story of your first civic action? Thank you. That's a great framing question. Um, so I guess to tell you a little bit about my, myself, um, I was born and bred here in New York. My parents are West African immigrants. Um, and so, uh, you know, my childhood, my early years were really formed by a sense of um, a quest for belonging, right? Living in a country that my parents did not call uh, their own, um, always feeling a sense of marginality yet really um, hungering for for full community. And so um, when I actually got to college, and I got to college and this was the place that my parents had, you know, pushed us towards for so long, had really invested in um, our education and really saw our uh, education as being like a pathway for us to have lives of possibility. Uh, So I got to college and felt immediately disillusioned that the space, the space of learning was still mapped on to clear lines of difference of who is in and who is out, um, that public service was really framed in a strong kind of careerist way. Um, and I had a hunger and a thirst for something that felt different for, 
you know, what I didn't know, but, you know, in, in my early readings in college of, you know, politics of liberation and black feminist literature, I really wanted community that was, that was rooted in solidarity. And so I got involved in um, labor organizing that was actually happening on campus. Um, somewhat innocently, it started with a lot of wonderful conversations with, you know, other black women on campus, um, the dining hall uh, staff on campus um, was obviously not coincidentally majority um, black folks. And so building real relationships of, of sisterhood in that moment and talking to in particular, Shirley Lawrence, who's a cafeteria worker in one of the dining halls um, there, who was telling me about how she spent her time outside of work. And her time spent outside of work was organizing in her community. It was knocking on her neighbor's doors, uh, talking about the new city that they all deserved talking about the fact that the university is the largest employer, um, but failed to actually provide um, real pathways for opportunity for their workers' children, uh, did not pay taxes, obviously, in the city, so left the city quite disinvested, despite, despite the fact that this was one of the largest, you know, universities in the world, one of the wealthiest universities in the world. And so the what was really relational work, um, talking to other women, talking to matriarchs uh, in their communities who did not see themselves formally as leaders, but were doing more to transform the life outcomes of their children uh, and their neighbors was, um, you know, what got me excited about organizing and what helped me realize that Yes, as I was trying to figure out my own narrative and my own story of how I fit in in this country and whether this country is mine to transform, um, but it all starts with solidarity-based struggle. It all starts with people connecting on um, shared experience and a shared North Star. And so I always you know, remember those early conversations with Shirley um, where you realize that Organizing across difference is one of the most powerful things that we can do um, and having a clear shared, um, you know, vision uh, with people is like our best way to build the world that we want to. So I've taken a lot of those lessons and all the work that I do is fundamentally based in relationships and a desire for uh, people to understand our faiths are ultimately completely interlinked. Wow. Would you say that given that history in terms of making the connection of what your political values are now and how that connects to your values with your parents? Because we, we, we talk a lot on the show about, well, I advocate for people personally, in my opinion, that people need to develop their own political values and not have it be swayed um, because you have a party identification. For a lot of people, their political values stem from how they were raised, stem from their parents. People pick their political party based upon what their parents have always been and assume, well, my parents were Republicans. That's what I'm supposed to be, right. <laughs> you know, and sort of we're right. not kind of taught how the, the, the mechanics of how you develop values on your own. And that could be from political to, to anything. Right. No, I think that's really interesting. I think that, um, What's hard, especially in this country, is our two-party system, right? And so we are automatically taught that, you know, you're basically picking a lesser of two evils when you go to the ballot box. 
And so your party is never actually really presented as a direct reflection of who you are. And so, you know, the ballot box and parties are tactical, if you say, but not personal, not transformational, um, not really representative. And so I think, I mean, part of what inspired me and excited me to do work with the Working Families Party was what if we actually had political vehicles that mapped on much closer to who we are as people and the type of world that we want and we think that we deserve, right? Can we actually build political homes for people where your individual values, right, things that you're taught when you're young about uh, collectivity and solidarity and um, caring for your neighbor and, um, you know, and, and, and not building things off, um, you know, based on, on, you know, not mapping values based on, on difference, um, if we can actually create a political home that reflects and embodies those that actually also could win, right? People stay, stick with the Democratic Party or people stick with, um, you know, uh, incumbents, et cetera, because there's a belief that they could win, right? There's a um, experience, there's the security, there's the familiarity of it all. Um, but what if we can actually both vote our values and vote with our hearts and believe that our politics are mapped onto our political identity and actually we've had a chance to win uh, at the ballot box by doing so. And so I'm, we're hoping, you know, uh, other countries obviously have multi-party systems. Um, we're really hoping that by being a viable and non-delusional third party, people don't feel as though they're quote-unquote big P politics, right? What they perform outside, what choices that they make have to be disconnected from uh, and not related to who they feel they are as a, as a person and what their communities represent and want. Now, before we're going to get um, down a little bit further and talking about what Working Family Party is and what the values are of the political party. But I, I, to expand a bit about this conversation is something that I advocate here all the time is that while I may identify currently as a Democrat, that could change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it can change because party platforms change. It can change because Absolutely. the uh, political atmosphere and landscape changes. And even Absolutely. having identified as a Democrat, I too believe that the two parties have way too much power over our political system in yeah. general. And so, yeah. and, and that starts for me from ballot access, right? Ballot access mm -hmm. is controlled by parties, particularly if you have parties controlling ballot access on the state and local mm -hmm. level. That is a problem for me, <laughs> even Absolutely. having identified in a particular party. And I think people don't know how to, and it's part of the reason I have this, the, the, the show and sort of teaching civics to adults, right? It's people don't know how to separate that too. They believe that if I'm a Democrat, mm -hmm. then I have to go down with the ship that's marked Democrat mm -hmm. and don't have an opportunity to say, well, Republicans should exist in conservative party and liberal party and worker family party. Like all of those entities should mm -hmm. exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, obviously, as a third party, we believe very strongly in ballot access. We think that voters have been clamoring for more choice, not less, always, right? The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was a reflection of voters being like, the Democrats are not letting us in. The Democrats are literally not giving us uh, participatory power in this process, mm -hmm. right? There's always been freedom movements that have mapped uh, their uh, their quest for liberation onto um, additional political parties because ultimately the way that the system is uh, is 
you know, can be seen cynically as a power sharing model, right, where we can vacillate between Republicans or Democrats each, you know, um, four or eight years. Um, but ultimately, um, you know, people feel locked out of the system. And so we have to figure out what are the politics that allow as many people as possible to see that their hopes and dreams do have political manifestations, to see civic participation and uh, voting at the polls as actually connected to outcomes and lived experiences, right? The point to the votes that they're making uh, as connected to changes in their community, changes in their impossibilities that exist in their life. Um, and it's our job, I think, as progressives and as leftists, honestly, to connect those two things uh, for people because that is not, that is unfortunately not where a political system uh, is right now. Um, you know, we talk a lot about in the party about uh, black people in particular as being taken as um, assumed passengers in the Democratic Party, you know, party bus, right? Um, the seats are, are held, you know, the seats are expected to be filled up. No one's doing turnout. No one's inviting you to the party necessarily. But, you know, you know that this, there's a seat for you there. Uh, the seat doesn't have real choice. <laughs> it's definitely in the back of the bus. Uh, and we actually have to really change the way our parties treat all voters and definitely be pushing the Democratic Party to look within its big tent and ensure that um, the voices and the priorities of all people, especially marginalized and directly impacted people, are represented in the platform of the party. Well, we're going to talk more about that part later <laughs> when we get past this. But I want to get to um, give everyone a baseline because I'm familiar with Working Families Party. And I know that WFP, as the acronym is known, it has several di- a presence in several different states across the country. For those who are not familiar, explain Working Families Party. Um, so the Working Families Party, you know, we're building a multiracial um, working people's feminist party across the country. And so we are in multiple states in, you know, in the Southwest, we are in uh, the South, we are in, you know, the Northeast, um, and really trying to build real, genuine political homes for people. And so it looks a little bit different in some, in some places. Our values are the same. Um, and in some places, we have a ballot line. So in New York, the state that I run for the Working Families Party, we have a ballot line, um, which is based on this principle of fusion uh, that exists that exists in um, across the country, but in certain in certain states that's a formal right, in other states it's not. Um, and so basically, what it means is that multiple parties can choose to endorse the same candidate. Uh, and so what it means is when you're voting on the Working Families Party line, for example, for um, you know, you know, we we endorse Elizabeth Warren in the primary, for example. If she was uh, the Democratic nominee and on the Working Families Party line, you can vote your values on our line and show I support this candidate that's also endorsed by the Democrat, but I support it on the Working Families platform. That means I support you know a Green New Deal, Medicare for all, uh, guaranteed housing, et cetera. It's a way to show both the candidate and the um, you know, kind of the primary political party that we may have the same uh, candidate, but the platform that we're pushing and the reason why we're supporting the candidate is based on these values. What it means is that a, polit- a third party can actually be really viable and it's not, you're not playing a spoiler. There's no spoiler effect. 
Um, so it allows you to build based on values to put forward your own canvas, which we do. We've also run, you know, amazing canvas, you know, in, in New York state, people like, um, Diana Richardson was a, you know, was a WFP, uh, only candidate. Well, we ran, um, you know, uh, Letitia James for his campaign before she became, you know, AG, right? So we've really been able to run transformational uh, candidates that may have been discounted by the primary party, by a major party um, on our line. And so uh, in New York, we're really looking forward to expand the number of progressive elected champions that we have that are clearly connected to message that resonates with working families in a broad sense, right? Working people to, um, you know, uh, workers to the unemployed, to marginalized folks, right? We really consider ourselves a party of the front lines. Uh, and so we want to make sure that our politics feel responsive to those needs on the ground. How does one become a party member of Working Families Party? Well, so you can sign up online. So there's uh, broadly, right, you can sign up to be a party of the, uh, a member of the Working Families Party. Um, you can sign up online. Um, and, uh, you know, we are a dues, a membership paid organization. So we have a base uh, contribution of $10 a month. Uh, and we have all sorts of kind of political education um, curriculum that we do. We really think about ourselves as educating and investing in our base. Uh, for our party to be a source of political development, for our party to be a place where we also cultivate a pipeline of new candidates, uh, where we kind of create meaning and create community around the politics that we share. Um, in New York State, you can also become a registrant of the Working Families Party by registering, um, like as you choose Democrat or Republican or conservative, et cetera, on your voter registration form. Um, that is also... That is also an option. Um, and so, you know, we build, we consider ourselves one big national party. And so our membership, we think of as a shared membership uh, because ultimately we're trying to push politics across the whole country. Uh, and we know that, you know, what not one state can lead alone, nor do some states deserve to be left behind based on some analysis of who is progressive or where progressive politics can or cannot um, flourish. Uh, so we're trying to build that movement uh, fully nationally. And I know you're in, like you mentioned, not only in New York, but Connecticut and yeah. Oregon, in uh, Pennsylvania, I, I believe. Yeah, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania had an amazing upset this past year. We elected a fantastic um, community leader, a black woman named Kendra Brooks, who became a WFP-only member of the city council, um, uh, you know, a seat that had been held by Republicans for generations, talking about the two-party system. There was a, a balance between Republicans and Democrats, and so has really been shifting the conversation around housing justice and um, the role of, of working women, of black women, of, of mothers in the movement. Uh, so that's in Pennsylvania. We have a party in Oregon and Maryland and D.C., in New Jersey, in Rhode Island, um, South Carolina, we're doing work in Georgia, uh, New Mexico. So we're like, you know, we're a little bit all over the place and really trying to build strong, connected base. 
Great. So if you um, are interested in learning more, you can go to workinfamilies.org to see not only their endorsements, you can become a member, see what their platform is and see if membership is (laughs) and being a party member is for you. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to talk to you, uh, Sochi, about coming out of politics in this COVID-19 reality and particularly for how campaigns are changing, what are what particular issues are more prominent now that we have this reality. So uh, we'll take a quick break and come right back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the I go let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, your neighborhood political strategist and uh, civics teacher. I have with me the New York State Director of Working Families Party. We, we call her Sochi here. We definitely know the context of that we're living in these days, Um, given the reality of how COVID-19 has impacted so many communities and (laughs) so many countries across the world, you know, it's going to be a different reality for us coming out of this. We are all trying to push through our current reality of staying home and, and trying to flatten the curve, if you will. But there are still politics that are happening, even with us confined in our homes. Talk to us a bit about before we get to post COVID-19 talk to me a bit about your perceptions and your reality of what's happening uh, now while we're still in our homes yeah no this has been um a deeply trying moment obviously new york where we are at the epicenter um you know my parents live in new rochelle new york which was the first kind of covid epicenter um i lived you know just north of the bronx which right now we're seeing has the highest rate um and so you know i think that there are a couple of things. One, we obviously have to do our part by really engaging in social distancing. Um, and we see that social distancing itself, the practice, is a luxury for, for many, right? That, um, you know, I have a job in which uh, I can work remotely. Um, my son is home with me. That is challenging. Uh, but the frontline workers that we're seeing who are still going out uh, and doing the essential work that are allowing most of us to stay home secure, right? Those are jobs. Those are people that we, you know, as progressives in this, mo- in this movement have always fought for the decency and known the essentiality of that work. So we're seeing that now, right? The a recognition of essential um, uh, work that we need to imbue with way more dignity and remuneration, right? People need to be paid, um, especially based on the risks that they are, they're flowing down uh, towards them. So we're seeing in COVID that there are fissures in our society that we already knew existed, right? Across racial lines, across geographies, uh, across uh, age, across wealth that are being more clearly, you know, made visible in this moment. Um, There, you know, the impact is not going to be the same, both in terms of the public health, reality right now 
and also the after effects. And so I think for us, you know, we know that transformational politics are the only way out of this. Um, we know that, you know, what at the national level, the establishment is reaching at as emergency measures, right? Um, talking about uh, some relief for renters and homeowners, talking about, uh, you know, paid sick leave, um, you know, considering, you know, people's bailouts of, of, of certain degrees, right? They're picking pieces of it as emergency measures. These are foundational political necessities, right? Guaranteed housing is a necessity. Healthcare for everyone that is not connected solely to an employer is absolutely a necessity. And so this crisis has to be a moment, an opportunity for us to actually talk about the type of policies that we know will not just allow us and our people to survive this crisis, but will actually mean we have a fighting chance to thrive after it and that the after effects don't continue to exacerbate and to widen the inequality gap that's ravaging all parts of this country. Um, and so I think it's both, this is a humanitarian crisis and we have to think about what are, you know, what are the values uh, that need to come out along with a stimulus bill? Like what are the values that our legislation has to reflect? How do we make sure that we're not deciding who does and who does not deserve to come out of this okay? You know, I'm talking about alive and I'm talking about sheltered. And I'm talking about with a child who's going back to a school that's funded and that has the social safety nets and the um, social worker and the therapist and, you know, all of the things that we know that our kids will need to come out of this okay. Um, we're talking about people who can go back to their jobs. We're talking about gig workers who have security and who, have not, who are not left completely devastated by this. Um, and so this has to be the moment for kind of moral alarm. We have to think that our politics are fundamentally about how do we care for our people and show real value in all of our lives. And so I think that ultimately is the test and the challenge that uh, lies ahead of us right now. I definitely think one of the uh, pieces in particular in having conversations from an equity standpoint on our healthcare system and healthcare de uh, delivery and sort of the health of our communities overall and knowing yeah. how much the deaths, particularly in communities of color, because it's yeah. a respiratory disease and you have communities that disproportionately have high rates of other issues um, that impact that, right? So it's it's not that the virus, which has no race context, which, you mm -hmm. know, remember back early in a couple of weeks ago when people are like, you know, black people can't get it. And I was like, viruses know, right? don't What's care that? about yeah. race. <laughs> like, it was like yeah. from a science, I mean, we said this last week on the show when we had an, an immunologist, um, someone who actually works on viruses and diseases on the mm. show. And she's like, viruses don't care about like, that's not <laughs> like what happens. Right. And, um, and so it was the beginning, it was like, black people can't get it. And now people are like emailing from an NAACP standpoint. At first people were emailing me and was just like, we're protected, you know, melanin is going to protect us and sort of all that stuff. And now people are like, they're, they're trying to kill black people. And they're I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> it's like everybody. but it's because we already from a community standpoint have underlying conditions. And Absolutely. so when you have something like a virus Absolutely. that impacts a 
respiratory system, in, you know, if you have high rates of heart, heart disease, if you have high rates of diabetes, if you have high rates of asthma, if you already have right. these issues, something like COVID-19 sort of highlights for people the disparity, right. the health disparities, and also the disparity in healthcare delivery. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I think that's completely right. I think especially, right, this is a, a disease of uh, the lungs, right? And we know uh, from an environmental justice standpoint that the highest childhood asthma rates, right, are in the Bronx, right, are in traditionally um, historically black, uh, brown, low-income communities, right, that, um, you know, health, that health disease maps onto lines of color as well. So that's, you know, that's in terms of personal individual health, Plus, we have systemic failures, right? Um, Elmhurst Hospital, like the most overtaxed, underfunded hospitals are in communities of color. Um, where I live, for example, right now in um, at the Bronx-Westchester border is a hospital that's been uh, fighting to, you know, for it not to be closed for the past year. They're fighting for it not to be closed. Then the pandemic happens when we're already we're at the epicenter and we're still fighting to demonstrate that this community needs a hospital, this community needs an ER. Um, and so we're, the crisis is, is manifold. Um, we're already starting from, you know, a couple of steps back and fighting for basic needs. And then in this crisis are fighting just to be able to survive. And so I think it really reveals, um, it reveals a lot. It reveals the urgency and the intersections of, you know, health and race and wealth and housing um, disparities that we really have to address and work on flattening. Um, but right now we have to, you know, care for people, make sure that, you know, our, our frontline workers are getting the protection that they need, um, make sure that lives are not being, um, you know, sacrificed for our collective public health without us actually investing in public health right? We can't be sending Instacart workers or even BOE officials that we're seeing now, BOE clerical workers who are doing the hard work of sorting through uh, manifold you know, petitions and government documents and getting sick and perishing in this moment. So um, the crisis is real. The crisis is affecting all of us quite deeply. And we're seeing right now that it's mapping on to um, black communities, brown communities, poor communities the most. And so we probably shouldn't be surprised, but we are furious and we have to figure out um, how to change those outcomes very quickly and how to make sure that we all move out, um, come out of this crisis okay. It reminds me, as you're talking about the fight for the hospital there, um, just back in 2012, um, here in Brooklyn, NAACP and medical center workers from the two unions that represent staff there, we were all in a coalition to save the downstate medical center, which was yeah, proposing yeah. to like cut budget, downsize staff, sort of all of this stuff that we had to do, a, you know, a fight to preserve that. And now those same hospitals are have been designated and sort of fighting the day-to-day to serve patients given this COVID-19 reality, right? And so it's like this this push and pull is like we are always fighting for the basics of basics of what is needed for our communities. And then when we have crisis like this, it highlights for, it, it, it sort of 
proves our point that if we invest financially and in uh, people resources in these institutions where there are these glaring <laughs> disparities, that they are our go-to when the crisis comes. It, it, you know, it, it just made me think about as soon as the announcement was made, the governor sort of designated these hospitals in Brooklyn as COVID-19. I was like, huh, the same hospitals we had to fight you to put Absol- money in? Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> absolutely. No, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. 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 And at the same time, on the city level, you know, um, they're using as the excuse of uh, safety. But, you know, um, the agencies in New York City are cutting, completely cutting the summer youth employment program. Right. Mm. So let's not find a way to see how we continue to service this Mm. um, vulnerable population. Right. Mm -hmm. But let's just scrap it overall. Why are services and support from a political standpoint for those who are most vulnerable, for those who most need them, are always Mm -hmm. available at the quickness to be on the chopping block? Absolutely. And and, and that's Absolutely. the kind of political, when we're talking about political values, I want to align myself with candidates and with people and with parties who believe that we have to protect and invest in the most vulnerable, not immediately throw them off the ship in order to save the wealthy, in order to save the people we value the most. Absolutely. No, I think that that's, that's the fundamental as a fundamental thing, things that people see as, you know, extracurricular added are actually essential services, right? That is, um, you know, youth employment is an essential service and it's going to provide, it protects us from future crisis, right? In this moment, we're going to think about, um, you know, kids whose parents are already being displaced in this economy, right? A social safety that's already eroded, a school year that was already cut short, um, and so we're, what, we're, what people have to think about is that we're further dividing, we're further investing in this, in this disparity when we make choices like this. Um, this is a question of who we choose to bail out in this moment. Are we choosing to bail out primarily corporations? Are we choosing to actually bail out and provide just and full recovery for, um, for people, for, you know, especially those who are most impacted? We need candidates who are absolutely prioritizing the latter. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) I feel like we could talk a little bit more about more more things. Uh, You mentioned early on that Working Families Party had previously endorsed Warren and then she dropped out. And now I believe you guys have you guys. I'm trying to stop saying guys. You all have (laughs) endorsed Bernie Sanders in the uh, Democratic presidential uh, nomination or the presidential nomination, I should say. That's correct. In the presidential primary, yes, we've we've endorsed Bernie Sanders. What are your thoughts on the presidential contest during this crisis? I think what's clear and what we've already known is that there is no leadership um, from the White House right now, right? We are, we've been fighting for what, for seven years now to... um, uh, you know, for, for four years now, man, it feels like it's been so long. Um, we've been fighting for many years now to push back against the Trump administration. Now we have a real opportunity to uh, remove him from the White House. And we have to think about if we've already lost ground in the past four years, how, uh, who can push us the furthest, right? Who can make sure that we are making up for the, um, the higher racial unemployment rate, the kind of, uh, 
growth of, of corporate, you know, protections and powers, right, that came out of the Trump tax camp. You think about who can take us the further in this moment, the furthest in this moment, especially in this crisis, right? I talked before about democratic uh, establishment emergency measures versus real transformational change. The platform that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren put out is what people are starting to pick at right now and try to take little pieces up to try to um, quell the crisis in this moment, right? If we had had Medicare for all, what different situation would we be in right now? If we had guaranteed housing, what different situation would we be in right now, right? So we have to think about, we have an opportunity to push for the most bold um, and necessary responses to what can be the turn out to be the greatest crisis of our lifetime. Now it's not the time for moderate tweaks and reforms, right? Now is not the time for um, apathy or for short-sighted fixes. Now is actually the time to think, what will our generation remember from these years? How will my three-year-old son have massively different outcomes um, as he's growing up? Um, how do I ensure that my parents are aging with dignity um, and, you know, are not pushed into the workforce for longer to make up for what will definitely be strong after effects of this slump uh, in employment at this moment. And so this, I feel like, you know, every year, obviously, we say this is the most important election of our lifetime. This one feels very, very, very important to me. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's an opportunity for us to really put out what is the type of country and world that we deserve to live in and what are the politics that will help get us there. We've seen through the stimulus that the government can do really, really big things. The question is, who do they do it for, on whose behalf, with whose interest in mind? And so we have to think, you know, scale is not the problem. It's people's political willingness and political courage to make sure that the scale maps onto the impact and everyone, right, everyone actually moves forward uh, through whatever intervention that we choose. I've been a partner in a number of fights with with you yeah. all, <laughs> but given yeah. the organize the the way that WFP organizes both on the ground and in person, how are you all shifting and changing your engagement strategies? Not only in this particular moment for candidates yeah. or for campaigns that may be on the ballot or issues that may be um, of immediate importance, but just looking towards November. This is something that I'm asking sort of all uh, political groups and yeah. in, in sort of putting these various plans together and how we engage people to, you know, think about their voting rights and thinking about this yeah. stuff at the same time that you're also thinking about your health, that you're also thinking about your Absolutely. job, you know, how are, how, how is WFP framing that? Absolutely. So I think in terms of tactics, right, we've had to adapt very quickly to, um, to do a lot of digital work to ensure that we're talking and meeting people, whether it's on the phone or through virtual town halls or through Facebook or through text, uh, you know, peer-to-peer -peer texting. So our tactics definitely have to shift. We fundamentally run grassroots campaigns and grassroots campaigns thrive on face-to-face -face conversations, uh, thrive on people really meeting the candidate, thrive on expanding the electorate, which means meeting, reaching, uh, you know, harder to find voters and not just relying on people who have high access to information, who have um, stable addresses, et cetera, but really thinking about increasing participation. Um, 
So we're still we're still trying to push very hard on that front to make sure our digital tools are me- are meeting people. Uh, our Kansas are also doing really fantastic um, like mutual aid and kind of community support work, which are a necessary extension of these campaigns. Many of the candidates that we support are naturally, whether formally titled or not, community organizers. And so when they're organizing grocery store runs for seniors in their neighborhood or, um, you know, other forms of mutual aid, that's, their campaigns are already embedded in, you know, infused with that notion of community care and politics as being an extension of community care. So that's kind of our, in terms of the tactics, right? There obviously are challenges. Uh, the digital divide is real, right? We're seeing, for example, you know, students in the Bronx who are coming home to do remote learning who, you know, forget iPads or laptops. They don't have Wi-Fi connections, right, to actually, to actually be able to learn uh, fully in this moment. So that's the same with voters. If we're turning to text, right, in this moment where people uh, can't pay their cell phone bills, right, if we're turning to internet in a moment where many people don't have internet, uh, we're, we're, we're still seeing the structural uh, disparities that will map onto, you know, uh, people's lesser participation, right? So we have to figure out how to break out. If we think it's our job to figure out how to break out and not to rely on the digital divide uh, in that in that kind of way, and then, you know, we're seeing this happening in Wisconsin right now. We can't let New York or other states get to that same place where the systems and structures are not well designed, uh, that people are literally forced to choose between going to the polls and carrying out their constitutionally protected right to vote, and taking care of their health, their, their public health, their personal health, um, their physical health, that should not be a, a balance that any person should have to make. And so we have to make sure that whether it's vote by mail, absentee voting, electronic voting, whatever it is, uh, our leadership has to consider, do we have real systems and structures that actually allow all people to participate in our political process to actually build a robust democracy, or are we going to see more divide on the level of wealth or age or geography about who can actually uh, cast a ballot, who can actually choose to participate in our process in this moment? Um, so that's a big choice. That's a big challenge that's ahead of us right now. Well, Sochi, thank you so very much for joining us um, and having this conversation. I do hope to have you back as we have more conversations and include the work and the focus of Work and Families Party. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so, so much, Aljoy. Please take care. How can it be that you love the most? Easter Sunday, and in a few minutes, I'm going to grab my Easter fascinator and tune into service at my home church. But before I get ready to sing my favorite gospel song, Up from the grave he arose. 
I want to share with you a few ways that you can stay civically active during this pandemic. Now, the first thing I want to say, the number one thing on this list is one, you staying safe and staying healthy. This means following all of the guidelines that have been given us about staying inside, about washing our hands, about covering our mouths, um, about interacting with people and limiting our interaction with people, isolating ourselves if we have symptoms, calling our doctor um, or scheduling or making an appointment to get testing, all of that. So the first thing is taking care of yourself. That is being civically active um, and politically active because politics is about self-preservation as well. But, you know, that's for another show. So the first thing is stay safe and stay healthy yourself. The second thing is helping others if you can, if you are in a position to do so. Now, there may already be community groups that you belong to, your church, or mutual aid groups and networks that have popped up to help provide support to seniors in your neighborhood or families with uh, children um, that need additional support in your neighborhood, and you can contribute. You feel like you need to do something. Um, We want to encourage you to stay safe while doing it, but also So if you are in the position to help others, to please do so. Now, third thing I want you to do, complete the census. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Maybe you thought it was over because there was census day, but it's not over. We are still in the period of self-reporting and the administration has actually extended that. And even though you don't see people out on the street because we're all in our homes, we still need to complete the census. Think about this, right? Some of us in our communities are experiencing our hospitals being overrun, um, are experiencing Uh, or understand the resources, the lack of resources on different agencies on a local level, a state level. Um, Our hospital funding and support, those numbers come from the census, right? There's a direct correlation there in terms of understanding how many people are in a neighborhood, how many people are in a community in order to have the resources to service that population. And that includes something like medical care. So completing the census is a civic action that we can complete right now. And if you have done so already, text a friend, call a friend. Um, Even in your ongoing conversation this week, if you need an opportunity or something to talk about with family and friends, census is an opportunity. And just set up a call, set up a conversation, and let's say let's all pour a glass of wine and complete our census together or help somebody complete theirs. The next item is preserving our voting rights. Now, uh, election dates are changing, and there is a national conversation about supporting financially mailing voting or absentee voting. So you need to check your state's rules on absentee or mail-in voting because there are a number of states that already have this in practice, 28 states already, even before this process, um, the COVID-19 uh, process, um, could vote by absentee. And some states have, you know, you need a particular excuse, like you're sick or uh, things, and then other states have... <clears throat> no excuse absentee ballot where you could just request a ballot to be mailed to you um, in order for uh, you to uh, cast your ballot for an election. So I want you um, later this week, um, if you have an opportunity to look up your state's rules and see how the conversation is shifting and changing about uh, uh, mail-in voting and make sure that you know the dates and the deadlines, you know how to apply. And if there's already the process up and running, 
go ahead and apply and you can get it out of the way and your ballot, you know, your ballot will be mailed to you so that you can still do that part of your civic duty of um, voting in our process. Lastly, because I didn't want to give make this list too long, lend your voice to the recovery. Um, as Congress, your state, and your local government is passing laws and implementing policy to get us through this crisis, your voice is also necessary. Your experience is necessary. I've seen a lot of conversation on social media, on the different platforms, about people in different categories, whether you're a good gig worker, whether you're a small business owner, um, a 1099 worker, um, all these different categories who are saying that they didn't quite fit in the box that is being established by certain uh, legislation coming out of the federal government of the last three bills that have passed. Um, some small business owners are saying that while this may exist, it may exist on paper, actually applying for it is difficult. And if it's based upon 2018 numbers or 2019 numbers, so you lifting up your voice and saying how the uh, um, the recovery needs to impact you and whatever category that you are in is extremely important. And look, all of our elected officials are trying to stay engaged with folks. So they're doing Zoom calls and Google Hangouts and Facebook Lives and, you know, having lots of conversations with their constituents in, a, in an effort to maintain contact with the people they represent. So this is a perfect opportunity con to um, maintain that dialogue if you've already done so. And if um, this is your first time connecting with those who represent you, this is a perfect opportunity to do so. Well, that's all I have for this morning. Thank you so very much for taking the time to join us and to stay civically engaged, even by listening to this show. Please stay safe. Please stay safe and healthy. And we'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday civics and more opportunities and ways to learn and to stay civically engaged. Have a good Sunday. It's cool. We are